Hello, and welcome to Classical Stuff You Should Know. I am here with two of my compatriots, Graham Donaldson. Hi, hi, sorry, I'm here, yes. Yes, he, I hope he's here, and Thomas Magby. Uh, oh, oh, hey, oh, hey, sorry, hey guys. And uh, our podcast is all about bringing the <laughs> the classical world to you, our listener, in, way, in a way that is digestible and not mm. too foreign, not too heady, not too academic-y, which is a word I just made up. And also, it's summer, right? Woo! Woo! <laughs> wow wow Sorry. summer is gonna be apparently a raucous time it's kind of a, i don't know uh summer is a very exciting time it's also a bummer because there are no students at the school like yeah. i don't know you get, things get very quiet so that's a we also live on the surface of the sun during the summer ah, yes there is that yes it's pretty warm down here i for one love summer okay, yeah right. <laughs> you two no, little rain clouds i know i do there. i do i do too love summer so um today friends we are going to be studying and talking about a book uh, by Aldous Huxley called... <laughs> a book, surprise, surprise. Surprise, oh, wow, surprise, yeah. called Brave New World. And Brave New World is, yes, it is written in the 30s. So that so those of you who are have questions as to whether or not it is considered a classic, you can send your angry emails to Thomas Magby. Wait, no, at, I don't like this. No, wait, <laughs> no, hold on. No, um, it is written in the, uh, in the 30s, um, but we do study it in 10th grade. And I teach it, even though it is a more modern book. But we're going to be talking about it because it is, it's good. It's a good one. But fellas, I just got to say, like, it's summer. Uh-huh. I had my coffee. Mm-hmm. I have a beautiful cup of coffee in front of me. I just ate some granola. Mm-hmm. The weather is nice. I feel like all of my needs are met. Okay. What more could I want? I like in that this you're life? doing your own intro for your own episode. <laughs> <laughs> you're you're finding your own pun to make on all this. Great. Um, no, because that that means the book. The one of the themes in Brave New World is isn't society and culture and civilization for meeting all of our needs. And if all of our needs are met, are we not then going to be happy, and uh, and you know just live in a state of perpetual ecstasy? Um, so let's talk a little bit about Aldous Huxley now. Frankly, I don't know too much about the man. Um, all I know is that um, born into the British or uh, aristocracy, relatively relatively famous family. I believe his grandfather was one of the scientists on board. Um, was it Darwin's? Darwin's, yeah, uh, on board the voyage with Darwin. Mm-hmm. Um, so he came from a pretty prestigious and scientifically focused family. I believe his father was involved at you know some of the highest levels of of um, the scientific community. And for Aldous Huxley, he was very much sort of by at birth was seen to be you know this uh, a future member of parliament. You know, like this sort of the, this uh, aristocratic uh, British bloodlines. Um, Went to the best schools, uh, but himself was quite sickly as a child uh, and spent a good portion of his young life in bed and in convalescence and away from other children, uh, reading a lot um, and uh, uncovering a pretty deep and expansive love of botany and plants and medicine. And when one studies botany, one quickly studies genetics and, and or at least rudimentary genetics and, and the, the breeding of plants and the crossbreeding and getting different characteristics and whatnot. And so he grew up in this kind of privileged uh, aristocratic life, but one that was also had hardships. He was removed from friends and um, often um, sort of saw himself as this outsider because of his illness. And that comes up a lot. Uh, at least in, Bra- in Brave New World, it comes up in these characters who seemingly have everything that they want, but have this little gnawing sense that that they're missing something. Um, anyway, um, there's a we're, the one thing we're not going to talk about this podcast is sort of Huxley's own view on this world that he creates in this book. Mainly because I always, whenever I look into it, I always get conflicting reports. The book itself presents this view of future human life that is so absolutely miserable that everybody who reads it is like, oh my goodness, this is terrible. But Huxley himself always sort of gave mixed kind of back and forths over how he thought about it, if he thought it was kind of like an inevitable thing. Anyway, we're just not going to talk about it because I don't frankly know too much about it. Didn't he write? Something after Brave New World is like, this is... Brave New World Revisited, which I've never read. Yeah, but yeah, so he has... um, How how is it still a new world? Wouldn't that be like (laughs) Uh a brave world that we've seen before? A brave uh, half-charted world. Yeah. Um, Anyway, so the book is essentially a... Takes this question of, we have 
the scientific method, and we're going to have to maybe some, define some terms today. We have science and we have technology. So maybe we'll start there. Well, what's a good like working definition of science, classically understood? What's science, maybe? Uh, what is science? Mm-hmm. Um, the ability. So we. I'm going to mix it with empiricism. So oh, that's you, fine. You might not appreciate that. But empiricism is is what you can see. Yep. So you can study the world around you to learn things about it. Good. And by the time we get, I mean, the scientific method is the idea that there can be certain inputs that lead to certain outputs, and we can test those. We can test those inputs to determine, yeah, the effects of them. Exactly. Yeah. Science, at its most basic element, is a methodology. A methodology of being able to say something about something. Being able to, um, and so yeah, you do it by experiment. So you have a hypothesis. Uh, man, I don't remember the whole scientific method. Our 10th graders always do whenever I ask them. And so because they know it, I've never had to memorize it whenever I'm teaching this. Um, uh, step one is grant writing. Yes, yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay, good. Yeah, Receive uh, grant, uh, establish research space, mm-hmm. research your new research. Don't repeat anybody else's. Step three. Write more grants. Snarky Twitter feed. Yep. Uh, step three, snarky Twitter feed. Uh-huh. Follow NASA. Uh, step four, publish paper. Step five, Gain notoriety. Step six. Question marks. To step seven. Profit. <laughs> yeah. Step, like step six. Get debunked. <laughs> step seven. Uh, associate professor. Perfect. <laughs> um, but the method is is a hypothesis, a method, uh, an experiment, and then actually performing the experiment and then coming to a conclusion about something. Yeah. And if you apply this methodology to the world and to all these different fields of things that can be studied, we can slowly build up a database of saying what is about the world. So, you know, what what is about physics? What what is about about color? I mean, you about could say light? That, you could say that science is the systematic seeking of the mind of God, right? I mean, I don't think many scientists nowadays uh, say right. that. I mean, know. But that's, uh, but, but yes, that, that's so, for the theologian. That's yeah. what you're or doing. Cl- in neoclassical yeah. sense, yes. Yeah, sure. and, yeah. Or that's what Aquinas would say, that like exactly. knowledge is conforming your mind with reality. Mm-hmm. So yeah, like he would take it that the- theological mm-hmm. way. That, yeah, it's true. So we have I, science. We have this methodology of saying what is about the world. And then we also have her handmaiden, technology. And technology, uh, the good definition of technology is... Um, an artifact created by a, by the by a human. And what I mean by artifact is it's it's something that is maybe tool is also a word, but technology is a thing that is being created by a human being for a function. So like a rock on the ground is not an artifact; it's just a rock. As soon as you take that rock and start using it for things, hammering nails into boards, you've turned that rock into an artifact. What you've Some ap- sweet tech. Yeah. <laughs> uh-huh. What you've applied to it. <laughs> Hot new gadgets. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> is you've applied uh, an idea and then you've uh, applied, you know, an understanding about the world that, that you know, the sharp piece of metal driven into wood is going to stay there. Uh, and, and so you've now have this, this technology, however rudimentary. So Huxley has this idea, and he says, we have science, and we have technology, and um, in the 19th century was the heyday of, like, this idea of scientific progress, that, like, mankind is progressing towards some kind of ideal. And before in the podcast, I know we've talked about, I, I've read from... Um, the quote from the World Fair? From the quote from the World Fair by Prince Albert, married to Queen Victoria, about, you know, this World Fair uh, at... Um, Crystal Palace, uh, about sort of the, the, the destiny of mankind, that through science and technology and innovation, we are going to bring mankind back to the Garden of Eden, back to some sort of place of, of, of sort of perfection. And Huxley has this idea, and, and he begins to look at kind of the zeitgeist around him in the early 20th century, so, so you know, a generation after Prince Albert. And he's sort of looking at the zeitgeist around him of what he sees the sort of fashions of humanity moving towards and sort of the spirit of the age. And he says, if we allow science and technology to sort of progress, what kind of civilization civilization could we envisage in 2,000 years, in some sort of silly timeline in, in the future? What kind of humanity could we envision? And then this book, Brave New World, is his attempt to give a an account for um, if mankind allows his desires coupled with technology and the increase of his powers to mold a civilization that caters to everything that 
we think we want, what kind of civilization would we have? And so he, so this book is his um, sort of thought experiment in doing that. So some of the the zeitgeisty things that he's looking at, and some of the things that you know that he's look that he's uh, uh, looking at is the advent of eugenics and the advent of um, um, genetic manipulation. So eugenics, the idea that if you breed, you can breed in or breed out of human beings certain characteristics based on, on you know, your understanding of genetics. Um, and, um, and so the big, the, um, and then the, the other thing that, that is sort of uh, takes a lot of prevalence in this book is prophylactics, is, is contraception. Every time I read this book and I think about it, I don't even think we realize how different a world we live in post-pill mm-hmm. or like, you know, uh, post-easy uh, birth control. It is an absolute moral paradigm shift that has happened kind of maybe 20 years before we were born. We're a sort of 80s, 80s kids, right? Born in the 80s? Yes. yes Thomas, yeah. you were born in the 80s? Were 80, born in the 90s or anything? 89, thank okay. you very much. Oh, Barely. 89, yeah. jeez yeah. Louise. Jiminy Christmas, I'm old. All right. Well, um, yes. <laughs> um, but I mean, anyway, so like um, just uh, this was not um, uh, – this was only beginning to be understood in Huxley's time. So this is – he's writing in the 30s. But the idea and the knowledge that science and technology would have the ability to divorce – um, sex from children, sex from procreation was is kind of was an under an un sorry was a known thing. It was just a, not a matter of if but when, and so that kind of um, moral um, um, atom bomb has gone off. And Huxley's kind of thinking about what kind of what kind of future would we have, what kind of civilization would we have. Anyway, maybe this is a good point to tell listeners that in discussing Brave New World. We're going to be discussing a lot of like pretty serious and, um, and some dark and some pretty heady things. So maybe this is a podcast for the younglings to skip. Mm. Uh, maybe we can. Maybe you need to wait a week and go on for Hannenberg's podcast on. I don't even know what you're doing next week. Jason and the Argonauts. Jason and okay. the Argonauts. That'd I mean, a that's one. a feel-good family story. Yeah. There's definitely no mass murder. <laughs> and no... But that's okay. No relations outside of wedlock. Yeah, None exactly. of those things good. exist in this ancient Greek epic. Excellent. Good. Neither do weird sword birds. <laughs> oh, I'm so excited. Um, Get ready, boys. Anyway, so let's talk a little bit about this world. Um, when I teach the book, there's the world building and then there's the story. And in many ways, the story is secondary to the world right. of the book. Um, this past year in English class, we were kind of running up against time because uh, we spent a little longer on some books. And so we just talked about the world building. We didn't even get to the story. The story really is kind of a secondary thing in um, in the book. So the world. So this is a world set uh, many thousand years into the future. And fellas, it's a perfect world. I, okay. <laughs> Everything has been organized and... Uh, the motto is, shoot, I can't remember what the motto is. It's like community, identity, stability. Okay, Isn't that great? Uh, That's no, what we're all working towards. No, no, it's not. Human beings, uh, the family has been abolished. We don't need families anymore. Uh, families just bring high passions and love uh, that's displaced inequitably in, in amongst society. So human beings are now born in factories, in test tubes, right? in, test tubes yeah. in bottles. And... Um, uh, uh, and everyone has an inescapable social destiny. So, maybe, do you like your job? Yes. Do you feel, do you have those moments at some point where you're just sitting at your desk and you're like, man. I'm nervous about where we're going with this. I was made for uh-huh. this job. Yeah, but if you're going to reveal to me that like Veritas, like as I was uh, in the womb, they like no, no. Uh, applied, was it, don't they give like alcohol to the kids? Hmm. When they're making oh, them. Oh, but you're not in the Brave oh, New sorry. World, oh, Thomas. Sorry. You are, okay, you are you. a okay. an old-fashioned normie. And bro, you're an alpha. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yeah. you are an alpha. If I'm an alpha double plus, then yeah. rock and roll. Yeah, seriously. Yeah. Um, so, yes, we, we, let's define Wait, our terms. pluses, double pluses? I don't remember. Isn't there's there... alpha double pluses, yeah. Okay, good. Yeah. There's, there's really? pluses and minuses. I couldn't remember what the... Yes. Yeah. So, the world is based on a caste system. So, there's alpha, beta, gamma, delta, epsilons. And everybody is created, and everybody has what is referred to as their inescapable social destiny. You have a place in this world. You have a future. You have a purpose. And that purpose is that you are going to be essentially conditioned to love the thing you're going to have to do. Yeah. 
So everybody's made in test tubes and um, sort of uh, is, the, the, the slang term is bottled. Everybody <laughs> is bottled and uh, is raised to uh, work in a specific job. So let's say if you're going to work in the salt mines, um, when you are either a, a fetus and then as you are a little baby, um, you are subjected to heat. And every time you're subjected to heat, some there, some sort of pleasurable stimuli is given to you in the form of soma, which we'll talk about in a second. And every and then you maybe you'll be subjected to cold. And every time you're subjected to cold, some sort of unfavorable stimuli will be uh, put upon you, like radiation or some sort of ways that make you feel nauseous. So that you always associate cold, bad, hot, good. Because your inescapable social destiny is you're going to work in the hot salt mines. Yeah. So there's going to be some point when you're in those hot salt mines, you're like, man, I flipping love the heat. And I pity those fools who have to work in the cold. That's right. Yeah. I feel like I was made for this job. Um, or if you're going to be working fixing airplane engines and hanging upside down all day, well, when you're a little baby or a little fetus, same kind of thing. They'll hang you upside down and shoot you full of uh, some kind of like dopamine rush that you associate upside down with awesome. And then when you're right side up uh, or when you're doing something different, you're going to be hit with some kind of radiation or some sort of thing that associates right side up with just not quite right. Like one of the modern wives of watch, they just make you watch reruns of some horrible <laughs> sure, television yeah. show uh -huh. or something. Yeah. So upside down, it's awesome. And then right side up is like modern housewives all day. Bravo uh -huh. television marathon. Uh -huh. Ugh. Anyway, um, because everybody has a job and a role that they need to fill. So you have a place that you're going to fill and you're actually bred and conditioned to love it. Now in this brave new world, um, uh, there are people that have to do pretty rudimentary and boring jobs. And they don't need to have the same kind of cognitive functions or the level of human complexity as everybody else. In fact, it would kind of get in the way. If you were a fully functioning adult and all you were doing all day is working in the salt mines or pushing a button, that may be boring for your high-powered mind. Um, so what in this brave new world they have developed is over a period of time, they've developed a caste system. So there's alphas, betas, gammas, deltas, and epsilons. Alphas are like you and I. <laughs> okay. Congratulations, Great. fellas. Okay. We are alphas. We have nothing wrong with us. Okay. We have our full cognitive abilities. We are tall. We are broad-shouldered. We are handsome. We are alphas. So you should think, listener, yes, <laughs> whenever yes, you imagine yes. us. Just yeah, cast in your mind's eye that yeah. picture. Then there are betas. Betas still have all of their cognitive functions, but they have some kind of deformity that holds them back. They're a little bit shorter. Maybe thick they need. have some. <laughs> they have Just some sort of. Okay. Maybe they have some sort of uh, of um, immunodeficiency. Um, one of the main characters, her name is Lenina, um, named after Lenin, and um, she has lupus uh, uh, given to her at birth uh, genetically. Um, so you have these betas, and the betas, they are these sort of second in the caste system, and they are not quite as perfect as the alphas. Gamma, delta, epsilon, you work your way down, and then when you get to epsilon, you have essentially, and the book makes no bones about it, they have essentially bred uh, a whole caste of, of uh, you know, either dwarfism and Down syndrome and some severe mental and cognitive uh, disabilities because they are only going to be bred to do some certain small function and they and and they don't need um, they don't need the full sort of gambit of, of the human experience. And how do they how do they sort of mess with your mental ability? Is it by watching multiple episodes of <laughs> just the more episodes you watch of Modern Housewives? No. Or? So part of it comes with um, a uh, something that that is called the in the book. I don't know if this is a real thing or if this is something that Huxley made up, but it's called the Bakanovsky process. And what it essentially is, is that the embryo, once fertilized, um, is put under a severe amount of stress. And when that embryo is put among a severe amount of stress, it splits into two, and then you put those embryos among stress, and then they're split into four. And in the in this, this world, they sort of discover that they can, not indefinitely, but... Um, uh, um, they can split embryos up to something like 70 times or something. And just to make you feel better, that is a fictional process. It is a fictional process. Yeah. So this idea that, um, that you split this embryo and that you have, you know, uh, 10,000 identical twins, 
of the epsilons. Um, just from so you're not waste wasting. You're not wasting one embryo on someone who's going to be an epsilon semi-moron, as they're called. You're just using you're reusing this embryo, and you're kind of like rinsing and repeating it, and that gives it that that degrades its its function over time in this world. But it doesn't matter <clears throat> because uh, you don't need full functionality because his inescapable social destiny is going to be something utilitarian. And, um, and, but he is going to be conditioned and bred to absolutely love that destiny of his. So for why, yeah, why would I want to think hard when I can sit here in this elevator and push buttons all day long and think about whatever I like, Exactly. Right? Those guys, they got to work in the salt mines and they got to think about all this stuff. I don't got to think. I, just, I can got, just push a button. Exactly. So there's one character. I mean, he's not a character. There's one scene in the book where the two main alphas are going up to the roof and the person who's running the elevator is an epsilon. And you can tell by the way that he, he only knows one word, and that word is roof. Um, and he can take commands of which button to push. But his greatest joy every day is when he gets to the roof and those doors open and the beautiful sunlight washes in his elevator. And he goes, oh, roof, roof. And you, can just, you just know that at some point during his, um, during his conditioning in the, hatch, in the department of hatcheries, that's where they're from, that's where the, everyone's hatched, that during his conditioning in the Department of Hatcheries, that he was conditioned to love pushing that button and going to the roof. He was made for that job. Identity, stability, community. Um, uh, so yes, conditioning is a big part of this. Um, pe- people are conditioned to hate, for example, going out into nature, or, and they're also conditioned to hate reading books. Um, because, as one of the characters tells us while giving uh, uh, a school group a tour of the Department of Hatcheries, is um, that back in the day we used to let we used to condition people to love to going out into nature. Um, but it turns out that everybody just wanted to go into the and go camping on the weekends. And the trouble with going camping is you don't buy very okay. much stuff. Great. Okay. And so we just realized that people, when they went out to the woods, it was kind of these two wasted days of them not purchasing anything and of them just sort of enjoying the outdoors. Um, so they are now conditioned to be suspect, to be suspicious of nature and to love organized sports where you have to buy lots of equipment. Because and the, the organized sports isn't, isn't just like basketball with a ball and a hoop. It's there are extra paddles and you have to have sets of paddles like and hoverboards and, and hoverboards and like certain helmets and a dress and like it's, it's all very complicated yes. and expensive. It's, it's like worse than hockey. Yeah. It's worse true. than hockey. Yes. That's, I right. mean, that, that's a, that's a sport that needs a lot of equipment. Oh, it's true. Yeah, it's true. And it's, it's worse than hockey. So people are then conditioned to love expensive um, uh, sporting sports um, because uh, you got to buy all the equipment and that keeps the economy going. Um, is it just me or does that kind of sound awesome? Like sports with lots of gear. I'm kind of a gear nut and I've, that kind of uh, sounds great. Uh, centrifugal bumble puppy is the name of one of the sports. <laughs> oh, I would play that. I what? don't know what that is. Seriously. That sounds fun. The, the, there are puppies involved. Yeah. And if okay. it's a bumble puppy, like, uh-huh. you know, Even it's better. just falling over its big fat paws. Mm-hmm. Oh, so cute. I, yeah. I'm not quite sure if puppies are involved. Does that make, that makes everything else worth it just to play bumble puppy? For, for me, yeah. Okay, yes. great. Yeah, okay, I'm in. Good. I'm in. Um, you are also taught and conditioned to love your place in the world. So alphas, uh, and through a process called hypnopadia. Hypnopadia is basically uh, when you're going to sleep at night, um, uh, phrases are repeated over and over in your little speaker pillows, and that you have these sort of phrases embedded inside you, much like a liturgy. Well, this was all psychological okay. conditioning when it was just coming out, right? Psychological conditioning was a brand new thing. Yeah. You know, uh, Pavlov's dog and all that. And they were like, hey, we can make people do what we want. We can make people yeah. do what we want. Yeah. Now, it um, turns out that in this hypnopedia, you can't get people to memorize facts, but you can get people to memorize sort of sentiments or moral feelings. So they learn all these little phrases and they're bouncing around in their heads and hearts for their whole life. Things like... Like a tree and a bee is not for me. Yes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I made that one up. That's very good. That's the kind you of thing. You could work good. in the, yeah. uh, in the, the, um, whatever the, the department of propaganda uh-huh. or whatever. Yeah. yeah. Isn't that, that's 1980. No, no, they're, they have they, a propaganda have department. A, oh, really? Yeah. Um, but things like ending is better than mending. It's better to throw out oh. your shorts when they get a tear and go buy a new pair of shorts than it is to repair your shorts. Because if you mend your shorts, you're not buying new shorts, guys. <laughs> true. Um, you have old, gross, mended shorts. That's mm-hmm. right. Everybody belongs to everybody, which is another thing we'll talk about in a second. Um, and then all the different castes are taught 
that their place is best. So the betas are taught like, I'm so glad I'm a beta. Those nasty gammas have to wear such an ugly color and they're dumb. Those alphas, they have to work so frightfully hard. I'm so glad that I'm a beta. And all the betas have this as they're sleeping in their barracks. Because remember, they don't have families. They all live in, a, in one big room as they're growing up. And, they just, and so they all have this belief that where they are and who they are and what they do is the best possible situation that they could be in. And everybody in the world um, has this place and has an identity and has a, 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 a place to fit into this machine and to be useful. Um, these are very powerful, um, powerful needs that are being met. Um, whenever there's problems, they do have something called SOMA. And SOMA is probably one of the most famous things to come out of this book um, uh, because it is such an interesting, it's because it's sort of a, a kind of a powerful metaphor. Uh, but what SOMA is, it is the perfect drug. Um, a little bit of SOMA just takes a little bit of that anxiety or a little bit of that edge off. A lot of SOMA and you go into basically, basically a blissful holiday. Um, Huxley, although I don't mention this to the students, but Huxley kind of, um, uh, in other writings and in this book, basically talks about uh, when you take too much soma, it's essentially like the height of of like sexual climax mm. extended um, in chemical form. Mm. Um, so this is what kind of this what soma is doing into the mind. So you have a small uh, bit of it, but if you take a lot of it, you're sort of at this 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 euphoric, um, you know, brain absolutely washed in dopamine and any sort of um, um, uh, stimulant. Um, and soma is used as um, uh, it is it is put in everything. It's in your food. Um, it is something that is just people socially take when there's various characters in the stories and whenever they have a problem or wherever they're like, oh man, um, so-and-so doesn't like me. The friend's like, you just take a little bit of Soma, go home, watch some Netflix, you'll be fine. Um, and uh, um, so Soma is, is yes, it's this, um, it's used whenever, so the conditioning doesn't work or if ever anybody has a bad day, or, you know, and this isn't a perfect world, Accidents still happen. You still, you know, people still die. There are still things that may be considered, you know, not so uh, psychologically comforting. Well, you just take Soma. It has no negative side effects. It has no hangover. Uh, if it's addictive, I mean, everybody's addicted to it. So if everybody's, if everybody's addicted to it and it has no negative side effects. And it's is plentiful. It, is it actually even like a social problem? It's, it's not. not going away. It's it's the caffeine. <laughs> I was about to say, says Donaldson as he drinks as his coffee. Yeah. coffee yeah. He's literally drinking coffee right now. Okay, great. Um, so anyway, so you have Soma, and Soma is this this uh, the thing that is the great smoother, the great equalizer. Um, uh, in this world, um, uh, everybody. So there's no more families. In fact, the family is seen as kind of like this dirty, um, gross term that if you call somebody a father, you're essentially calling somebody, it's like the equivalent of saying something is a poop. Uh, if you call somebody a mother in the world, that it has a much sort of grosser scatological uh, interpretation along with it. They are considered- childbearing is really not a- It's not clean. Know, it's not a good looking it's not process. tidy. Yeah, it's not tidy and, and test tubes are. Right? And yes, exactly. And they're controlled yeah. and uh, everything can be, uh, uh, yes, can be planned and organized. Um, so the vast majority of people of women in the brave new world are sterilized. They don't need to, they don't want to be, they don't need them bearing children. They don't want them bearing children. Um, but a very select few are not, um, and their eggs are harvested and then are used in the, in the hatchery process. Um, the sexual ethics of the brave new world is that everybody belongs to everybody. There is no marriage. Any kind of relationship that lasts for a long period of time is looked on with suspicion because problems arise when feelings are, are isolated and are, are localized. So if somebody loves somebody too strongly, well, they are going to make decisions in their life that are A, unpredictable, and B, maybe not necessarily beneficial for the whole. Um, uh, for example, I love my wife. Uh, I will make decisions that, uh, if push came to shove, I would probably make decisions that would take me out of 
community with you with you fine gentlemen like if 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 um if a man had just had to live in Sweden or something I don't know this is a bad stupid example but you know what I mean so like um um if if so strong passions and feelings are looked at suspiciously eliminating families or the slow elimination of families I want to remind the listener that this is a process that has happened over many thousands of many hundreds of years Whenever I teach this book, students always sort of think that some big bad has kind of instituted this this world and is pulling the strings in the background. But that's the 1984 book, um, not Brave New World. Maybe we'll talk about how those the legacy of those two books towards the end of the podcast. Um, but there's there is no big bad. This is a society that has kind of we've kind of um, ambled, sort of you know found our way to. Uh, it wasn't this great plan. It was essentially, what do human beings want? Well, what are human? What are problems that human beings have? Hate our job. Hate our job. Don't right. have enough sports equipment. Yeah, <laughs> don't have enough entertainment. <laughs> we hate our job. What if we made everybody love their job? Uh, what else do human beings want? Well, we want we want to have sex with everybody. Okay, fine. What if we just created a world where everybody could have sex with everybody, no problem? Oh, okay. No mosquitoes. Um, well, stay out of nature. Yes. Um, uh, uh, well, we get wars and stuff. Oh, well... Why do people have wars? Well, if you boil it down, someone's passions for something are stronger than other people's. And their know, needs aren't met. And their needs aren't met and uh, or there, there's feuds because of love or whatever. Well, if we can smooth all of that out from birth, from the beginning, then we can avoid all of these problems. You know, so this is a this is what the world has kind of slowly lurched itself into as opposed to some sort of giant revolution has happened. Um the slow march and the advent of technology. So, um, anyway, so yeah, the sexual ethics. Everybody belongs to everybody. Everyone is is um, is expected to have uh, um, sort of meaningless and um, permissive and pervasive sexual uh, relationships with everybody. And if you're not, it's not okay. And if you're not, it's not okay. It's weird because it well, it also means that somebody else isn't getting fulfilled, and you're not doing your part. And that's right, right. isn't that part of it? That's right. And yes, so there's one character, and she kind of. Um, so this is the world of the book, the 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 story of the book, which I don't even think we're going to spend that much time talking about today. The story of the book is that there are a number of characters that kind of feel like everything doesn't really fit for them. And there's one character and her name is Lenina and she is quite beautiful and she's a beta, but she's one of these betas that has, um, that it hasn't been sterilized so that she even sort of is more sexually appealing to everybody. Um, and she is a highly sought after partner and she's just kind of at some point feeling like it's just something's missing. And she ends up dating somebody for a month and her friend tells her that that's unnatural. Um, and she's sort of looking for something. Pa- passions, right? Because passions, and she's sort of looking for something more. So all, um, so all of these characters are kind of their humanity begins to sort of bubble to the surface. Right. There's one character who feels like uh, he hates Soma. There's one character who's an alpha plus who has the best job. All the women love him. He's handsome, and he is an basically he's an advertising executive. To put a sort of long, that's sort of what he does. He actually writes those limericks, those little mm. phrases. He wants to be a poet. He wants to say something meaningful. And so he kind of has this feeling like everything's not right. And then Lenina, she kind of wants some sort of real relationship. And she has this feeling like everything is not right. So the story is, is that human nature still bubbles to the surface. And this world can't completely give everything that everybody wants. But the tragedy of the book is that the conditioning is so pervasive that what we recognize as normal human nature eventually is seen as um, um, kind of a bug in the program and the conditioning and Soma eventually can sort of eradicate that those desires and, and bring everybody back to a sort of a baseline existence of, of pleasure and of um, um, every, every need being met. Um, our students very easily see the seeds of if this if this book is the full flowering, they they easily see the seeds of it in their lives and in, in the life in the world around them, um, uh, loosening sexual norms, uh, hookups, um, um, Tinder, Tinder. It I mean, it takes four or five questions in a class to actually remind the student that oh yeah, sex is about 
babies, <laughs> right? Because, because they have been so decoupled in sort of our modern understanding or our modern uh, culture that um, sex and child rearing are almost seen as as completely different categories altogether and, and have no crossover in terms of just average conversation. Um, this would not be so 100 years ago, um, uh, even before, um, so before, you know, technology has made it where we can decouple uh, the act of sex from um, from the moral responsibility of family. Anyway, um, SOMA is also something that students very easily gravitate towards. Um, as I've been teaching this book for the past seven years, more and more, uh, it used to be kids would talk about drugs, but now kids talk about cell phones. Uh, mm. and kids talk about technology. And um, it's amazing. Our students, not just our students, but students uh, and this uh, generation, um, know so much about dopamine mm. just the concept of dopamine and tech and science and technology like we never knew this stuff when we were kids um, but they just know the idea of like the science of addiction with screens and and chemicals just it's um i guess it's just sort of more talked about in um anyway so they they are quick to to draw those connections uh to that and see the sort of seeds of this um uh, so this is this is essential to the world. I'm trying to think if I'm missing any other big pieces of it. No. Mm. I, I mean, unless we want to talk about the people who are kicked out of the society. Um, well, yeah, as the story goes on, there are people that just don't fit in and they eventually get kicked out to this sort of like island of misfits. Yeah. Um, but another thing is, is that this world is you have to sort of read between you have to be pay a lot of attention, but you realize that the upper upper castes are white Europeans and the lower castes mm. are Asian and, and black. And there's definitely sort of a, a racism um, element to this story going on. Um, the idea being that one group of people arrived at the technology first and then was able to use that technology to enrich themselves and uh, and screw over uh, the other. Um, and then that... that that die was cast and then society has sort of moved along that trajectory. So you have this, um, a huge racial divide where the lower castes are, are, are um, other races. Uh, and then the upper classes, uh, upper castes are uh, um, European, white European. So there's, there's that element. Um, and, um, and then there's also the uh, sort of the objectification of, of women. Women in the book are talked about as essentially Actually, a lot of the slang terms to talk about how uh, attractive a woman is are either terms about, like, a machine, like, look how pneumatic she is. That's sort of one term. Or some sort of apparatus mm -hmm. that the female form and the female person is purely an object of sexual desire, period. Um, um, and that the commingling of uh, sexuality and motherhood and family is, that is no longer a, that is... Though there has been a sharp divide between those two things. In the brave new world, you don't age. Um, everybody sort of hits the perfect like 27 to 32 and then stays there until their bodies fall apart and they die. Um, so from when you say to this, you know, when you sort of look at it, you say, listen, here's the world where a lot of your, what do students have anxieties about? Am I going to, am I going to be able to like find a place in this world? Am I going to have a job? Am I going to am I going to have some sort of um, meaningful existence? Well, yes, you will. In fact, from birth, you will it, be conditioned to in the world of brave new world. In the world like, of yeah, brave yeah, new world, yeah. yes, yeah. you will. Um, everything has been taken care for you, taken yeah. care of you, and in fact, you are going to be completely formed to love the thing that you can't escape. Um, you will be able to. Um, uh, it's like the uh, any sort of pop song, right? Like. You see the thing, you want the thing, you get the thing. Um, uh, uh, that will be a reality for everybody. Um, and if uh, um, um, you will, um, there will be no rejection. Um, you will, uh, everyone belongs to everybody. Um, and then if ever there is a bad day, well, there is, there is a, um, a chemical backup for you in SOMA. Um, and so then this is the world. And so I always ask my students, so then what is traded? Or the, or the other question is why, and usually they're reacting like, oh, I don't like this. This doesn't sound good. Mm -hmm. And my question is, okay, why? What's wrong with this? 
And how is this how is this book anything other than the conclusion than the the logical conclusion of what a lot of our sort of cultural zeitgeist is telling us that we want? Students often I mean so we have good conversations with that. Um, Isn't the difficulty that people would be happier yes, in this society? That is the difficulty. Um, yeah, like it's hard to. Yeah, you're saying that like in the language of. I don't know. I don't like using the word culture. I don't know. It's hard to like criticize what's wrong with it is my thought number one. But then thought number two is like nothing will keep us from going in this direction. Yes. Like there's no one who's standing up and being like, we should have less pleasure or you know what I mean? Like, Mm -hmm. and the worst part is that the people who like, you know, the main character leaves and goes to this Island of misfits thinking it's going to be some sort of paradise of true humanity. And it's not, it's kind of crappy. It's not like they don't have very many resources and families are broken and food's bad. Women get left and the food is bad and there's a lot of superstition and it's hot and there's no air conditioning. And it's, it's, it's not a great, world and he doesn't want to stay there either and Mm -hmm. so Aldous Huxley doesn't just present the one side like this is where we're going we should definitely stop he says well here's the alternative and it isn't that great yeah um yes it's definitely a pessimistic book um I think for the student why I think it's important to teach it is that it does confront them with um uh, the seeds of ambition and the seeds of culture are the seeds of of sort of this this progress towards what and really, the um, the only way out of it is to say that there is something about being a human being that is beyond what this book offers. Mm. So this book offers those three things, identity, community, stability. There's something more that the human person wants than just those three needs met. I think about this whenever – so what was the – what's that like? It's It's been bouncing around um, in a lot of like the TED Talks, you know, the – the the things that human beings need to be happy. Oh, um, I don't know. It's like means. friendship and uh-huh. meaningful work, and um, it's some sort of hierarchy of needs, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, the, uh, ben Sass did a talk at um, Senator. He's a senator from Nebraska. He did a talk at the Gospel Coalition, and he was talking about you know the, I think the psychological research says that human beings generally need um, friendship, people who who are sad when you're sad and happy when you're happy. Sort of its basic forum um some sort of meaningful work and the last one is important and the last one doesn't exist in the brave new world some kind of um answer to what happens after death some kind of answer to um it's not just like how do you make sense of suffering but it's more how do you make sense of mortality so that's one thing that they don't have in the brave new world in fact they shy themselves away from death they isolate death uh, and they condition you to actually um, not think about it. And to, so for example, when there's a, a tour group of little kids at a hospital and someone dies and the kids see it. And so they're immediately given so much chocolate ice cream uh, so that they sort of associate uh, this sort of somewhat traumatic experience uh, with ice cream and, and so on, you know, sort of pleasure and all that kind of stuff. Um, so, what I try to use, what we try to talk about with the with the book is, is that this is an unnatural vision of human humanity that the students have a repulsion to it, but they can't easily say why they don't want the fruit of what this world is giving them. Because they do want the fruit of it. Because they do want the fruit of it. Right. But but there's something uh, that um, there's a lack of freedom. Or there, uh, there's something that doesn't deal with maybe some some sort of spiritual sense or some sort of transcendence of the human person that needs. Um, but there isn't really a lack of freedom. If you want to go to the exactly, I know. If you want to go to the reservation, you can. If you want to take a holiday and be on drugs, you you can. You yep. want to go to the forest, absolutely. As You're just alpha. not going to like it as an much. alpha, right? As an alpha. Mm-hmm. But the beta's and gamma. I mean, the gamma deltas epsilons don't, don't even have. Go. They don't even have the the tools to be able to think beyond their conditioning they, right. they they are essentially subhuman they don't have they are in the realm of 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 instinctual animal like they don't have the same rational faculties at least as huxley presents them yeah they don't um but you are a f- you are pretty free in a lot of ways it's true to do what you want to do so what's um, missing yeah that, that's the, that's the big question the big question is, is what is missing and why is this why does everybody get a little like um humanity yeah There's but what humanity. is it 
So there's a scene, I think toward the end where a bunch of Epsilons are about to get their Soma. And um, I forget which characters like it's John. It takes the Soma and about, like, yeah. throws it out mm-hmm. um, to um, start a revolution. He wants, to, he wants to free them. He wants them to like rise up and yeah, exactly. Like over, over um, throw the system and they don't want to do it. Mm-hmm. Like, they are pleased with their station in life. They don't, they're not allowed to consider it being different. Mm-hmm. Like they're being, they're not being treated as humans. They're not being treated as people. Yeah. Um, this book often gets talked about in the same sentence as 1984. Um, but I feel like Brave New World and 1984 are, they are radically different visions of collectivist future. I, th- I think they're pol- polar opposites on the same track. Yes. Kind of. So they're both, um, when I say collect, they're both collectivist in its vision of, of, of future humanity. So what, I'm, what I mean by collectivist is a centralized, controlled human existence. So with this one, it is a, um, a controlled, it's basically a honey trap, right? Is what it is. So it is a, uh, an existence where all of your physical needs are met. Um, and the trade-off is your, I mean, I guess sort of your existential freedom. I don't even know what to say, how to say it. There, there is a trade-off, however you want to put your finger on it. 1984 is just a boot on a neck. Yes. Like 1984 is... Uh, uh, is People want something other than this um, uh, authoritarian mm-hmm. uh, government and they can't get out of it. They can't right. get out of it and even their minds are beginning to be changed through, you know, what was it, doublespeak mm-hmm. and, and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and... I always chuckle whenever I read some sort of think piece or a lot of people say, oh, we're living in a 1984 world. Um, and I, I, I don't see it. Not yet. I don't see it. Uh, we live in uh, a brave new world world. I see way more mm-hmm. seeds of that. Well, that's the th- I, think, I think both are manifest. I just don't think current United States is manifest in 1984. I think there are other countries around the world that are experiencing far more 1984 oh, sure. than they are Brave sure. New World. Yes, totally. Yeah, there are there are definitely strong-armed um, fascist regimes that have the boot on the neck of freedom in the world. Definitely. Absolutely. Um, but with the with Huxley's Brave New World, this seems to be the kind of, of world that would be um, stumbled into by mistake as opposed to um, um, intentionally planned in, by an by some sort of strong arm, yeah, yeah, and that's kind of the f- the scariness of the um, of the book is that uh, is that um, every kind of terrible conclusion soma um, seems to have its genesis in a problem that we have today. So, so in the United States. Drug addiction is now, I think it's, is it beat out heart disease or at least it's getting there? I don't know. The, the thing that went around headlines is that the life expectancy in the U.S. dropped because of opioid yes. um, overdo- overdoses. Okay. So, yes. So there's, here's two. So then you, you are somebody who cares about this problem. And there are two ways that you can try to solve this problem. We can try to get people off opioids. Oh my goodness. People are taking these opioids and they're dying. Or you can engineer a safer opioid. Right. Right. Like, and so here is... Uh, the world has said, well, it's too hard to get people off drugs. If we can engineer safer drugs. Um, you can get people off of marijuana or you can just be okay with marijuana. Yes. And, and then if we can, and if, and if we can sort of scientific, pour our scientific resources into understanding what makes up these materials, then we can engineer them in ways that are safer. And I mean, then all of a sudden you get, you get all sorts of, um, uh, dystopian uses of words safer and healthier for the community, right? Like right. that's garbage, but, um, but you get these, uh, uh, these sort of new zeitgeisty phrases about like using science for a better world and engineering better opiates, <laughs> right? Like you can I mean, almost hear, already happened? Like, you can almost hear have... like the startup bro pitch in Silicon Valley. Well, we used to um, have opium and now we have Adderall, Right. Yeah, I mean, you know, when you have, um, what are they called? Meth- not methamphetamine. No, you have um, methamphetamines and uh, benzodiazepines, whatever they're called. Benzos. Sure. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so, right, every every com- terrible solution, every terrible terminus in this book, you can see the seeds of it today. Oh, I guess I'm... Um, Broken families. But also all these things, like, oh, when you're family. referencing medication, like, medication has a use also. Mm-hmm. Like, it's not... What sort of this? Kind of. Soma is for the escape. It's not for, I don't think it, maybe, tell me... Actually, um, when John's mom is in the hospital, is her soma drip for pain or is it? It's for pain and oh, also because okay. she just doesn't want to. 
the, she's grown ugly and she's in a world of beautiful people. Yeah. The, the point I was going to make is that um, maybe the drugs you're talking about have actual purposes. Adderall has an actual purpose. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Soma does not really have a purpose. Like it doesn't have a medical purpose rather. Same Unless, with o- opiates have a medical purpose. Sure. Uh, or you invent, you invent the, uh, the, the, um, you pathologize human experience sure. <laughs> in order to that. Yeah, Cause you already have this solution for it. Yeah. I guess, I mean, the, the only pushback I'm giving is that, so like we need painkillers. And so a non-addictive painkiller would be like, awesome. Yes. Like that, that is a thing that should be developed so that like surgeries uh, can happen. Oh, tell me I'm wrong. That's fine. Well, but, do you not how, want pain, how, I mean, do you not I, want painkillers? I'm just saying okay. a non-addictive painkiller is is kind of like a misnomer, right? Like, isn't every sure. non-addictive painkiller going to be addictive because well, it kills um, pain? That's what um, opiates were supposed to be. Yeah. That's how they were marketed in the 90s, and that's mm-hmm. why... You guys uh, had ibuprofen, right? Yes. Yeah, exactly. That's why... You know, it's not really that addictive, as far as I know. Sure, but, but that's not an opiate. That's not. But, you oh, can get no, but it is. It is a painkiller. Like if oh, you're sure, talking sure. about yes, non-addictive yes. painkillers, like yes. we have those. But there I'm are, saying like for uh, for like high high end pain. High or mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So like for back surgery, like you, you your ibuprofen will not help you with that. Ether will though, won't it? Uh, sure, but uh, I think you can die from ether. Uh, hmm. Yeah, I mean, yeah, hey, so, let's, let's I get guess, weird. Everybody. Anyway, sure. I guess I don't know. Um. Yeah. So I think has the same problems of addiction, but I'm not sure. But if we don't, but we need to keep sort of a nuanced. If we, if I, I guess my, my point is, is if we lose an idea of, of what, if we lose an idea of health that does, um, if we start messing with the baseline idea of what is a happy person and we say there can't be happy people unless they have some kind of chemical but that's um, but this is tough. Additives. But if you so um if you can boil down and say happy brain looks like this and you can regulate hormones to make it look like that. Yes. Like why wouldn't you do that? Exactly. That's the point. Why right. I mean then this is the world that has done that. Right. Um um why because there so there are really hard ways to make people happy and like live good lives and like the Ben Sass thing you're talking about like yes you can get those three things but it's really hard to get those three things friendship and and yeah. and uh, a great job yeah. or not just a great job but a purposeful job and then a, a sense of 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 peace about death yeah so what's way easier than that is is getting high what's way easier than yeah. that is um, video games what's way easier than that is like like there are all these easier mm-hmm. paths to get to those things. Um, and so we should lift up those hard things and say they're worth going after, but we, you almost have to lift them up because no one naturally is going to say, I want to do hard things to get good results. Yes. Like it, it hurts. But if we can continue, but if we continue to perfect the easy path, yes. then, um, uh, it's the easy path to, um, and maybe this brings us back to, uh, um, abolition of man. It's an easy path to something that is no longer human thinking. as we know it, right. human as we recognize it. Right. Um, and there are probably people who would make that trade. I think there's, yes, I think there are lots of people who would make that trade. Yeah. I'd, yeah. Why wouldn't we make that trade? Because we would no longer as classical be people, human as Christian men. Why wouldn't we make that trade? Yeah. Uh, when you say uh, there's so, so many parts of the trade that I'm having trouble sure. differentiating them. Like again, the one part of why would you not genetically modify people to like be nicer in the future mm-hmm. is that's the disres- like that's disrespecting their humanity. It's fundamentally changing what it is to be a human. Mm-hmm. Why don't we bliss out and escape from the world is because we're supposed to like make this world better. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're supposed to, yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't, the, it almost makes you think that we've probably like the outcomes that we think we want in brave new world are not things that we actually want Yes, or and, not things that we should want. And that's what characters kind of bump up, excuse me, bump up against yeah. is, Oh man, there's, we got it. I just, it feels like I just don't have what I want. I still feel like there's like, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. a kind of thing. And everyone's like, well, let's take you so much. You'll be fine. Right. Um, but there's still that sense of, of, um, that you're not living the way that you ought. So the book confronts the student with the immensity of that, of that question, because the conclusions of the book are so much, what the world tells them they want and says they're that they ought to be working towards. And then when they sort of see it in the naked light of day, they're like, I don't like that. Um, and, um, I think there are a lot of things that miss They're missing. I mean, there's the, 
you, you, you touched on freedom and said that we do like, and I said that they kind of do have freedom, but they don't have freedom in the way that humans generally want. We want freedom to determine our own purpose, right? And that is t- specifically taken away from them. They, mm-hmm. they cannot determine their own purpose. And it's the same reason my, my leadership kids rail against uh, predestination because it feels as though it is taking away their ability to predestine the, their Choose own themselves. futures, yeah. right? Choose for themselves. Yeah. Well, maybe what you do is, desperately want. is you fool them into thinking that they've made a choice about their job. So you like condition them. Like if you're, if they're going to be a salt mine person, you condition them to enjoy all the things of salt mining, but then you don't tell them they're going to be a salt miner. And then when they're 17 in high school, you're like, you know what? This pamphlet came across my desk and it's a salt mine in- internship. I think you should check it out. Well, and then they go and they realize, oh my goodness, I flipping love salt mining. I've discovered myself. That's that's the other piece is that it, it reduces the end purpose of man. So so it reduces the freedom of, of man to choose. And then I also think it reduces the end purpose. If, if someone's end purpose truly is salt mining, mm-hmm. well, isn't yes. that a shame? It's their social purpose. Right? It's their yeah. social purpose, but it has made their ultimate purpose yeah. and because the rest of their entire life is formed around this one job that they are supposed to do. Mm-hmm. When in reality, very rarely does someone find that much fulfillment in a salt mining job. Yes. Right? Their, their actual purpose is found somewhere else in something they enjoy, say model trains or family or... Something, something else that is a, well, a purpose they have chosen for themselves. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Yes, but for some people, they think that chief end is model trains. Oh, I see. So <laughs> I'm not saying that is their chief end, but I'm saying at least they have chosen it, mm-hmm. right? They've chosen some purpose that they want to pursue rather than being slotted into a purpose. But model trains will eventually be dissatisfying. Oh, I'm not arguing with that. Yeah, yeah. What I'm saying is that that person chose model trains, mm-hmm. right? They weren't ferried into model trains. And so I'm hoping that you're like actually really into model trains. I, I, I think they are just as boring as a salt <sighs> mine. Bummer. Okay. Yeah. Good. Yeah, they look kind of fun. I'm not, I just, uh, trains have never really been my thing. They can't turn think, fast. I just think the language of choice is really hard in the context of this book because you would genu- genuinely say like the Epsilons are choosing the salt mines. They're choosing, yeah. they want Soma above everything else. But it's also, it's, it's almost unfair because Brave New World changes all of our categories. Like yes. In, yes. Any, in any other context, we could talk about, yeah, if, if I met a kid and like he loves the heat and he loves salt mining, then like more power to him, go do it. But in the context of this book, th- that's wrong because they're being forced into it. They've been manipulated. Yeah, manipulated. Right. Yeah, and exactly. so it's, it's, so it's still choice, finding but... out that you have been manipulated by your parents your entire life. Right. And of course you would rail against that. That's not true freedom. And but, so you're missing those those mm-hmm. pieces, certainly. Yeah. And of course... The, the questions of higher purpose, mm-hmm. afterlife, and religion, which yep. are completely absent as far as I know. But then the sort of the, uh, the good heuristic that this book can do is then can give the student the ability to say, wait a minute, I dislike the idea of being manipulated in that brave new world. In what ways am I being manipulated by what I think is normal now? Like I live in, you know, they live in this culture or they live in this world that has, that is where they're being taught and they have these phrases and every ending is better than mending and everybody belongs to everybody. And I, as this sort of outsider, look at that and I say, oh, terrible. But then to have the ability to say, wait a minute, I need to look at the culture that I live in as an outsider and begin to look at the messages and begin to look at the things that I am presented. And when students begin to do that, um, it is a scale fall from their eyes kind of experience. And all of a sudden, insidi- they begin to see the insidious things of the world that they've never seen before, like, um, I don't know, the, the algorithms that tell them what Netflix shows to watch or, or you know, the predictive, um, the predictive Google searches or any of these sorts of things right. that begin to say, whoa, my experiences and my um, – uh, what I should be wanting is being catered to and is being manipulated by something that is not – and this is another whole episode. It's not this like, you know, it's not this big bad sitting in a tower saying, you know, boah, ha, ha, I can control the masses. It's not like Zuckerberg's pulling all our strings or whatever. Right. We kind of stumbled into um, into a, um, a system that is doing this kind of thing. It says, oh, people want, what? Do, uh, give the people what they want. What people want are... You know, affirmed in their political view, like to be exactly to be affirmed in their political views. Facebook has all all our information because we gave because we gave it to it. Yes, all our information. Um, But now it's and then you sort of there's this tipping point where it's this sort of feedback loop, and so and so when students begin to look at it in that way, they get that same kind of sense of uneasiness or that same sort of sense of manipulation that I think that they see when they when they look at this book, and it can it's a sort of a disorienting and um, um, kind of destabilizing experience. And I think it's 
good thing. Mm. Um, when we were kids, I don't know if maybe you guys didn't have this experience. But when we were kids, we uh, I remember um, my folks, when we would watch television and ads would be on, this is in the 80s and 90s was the heyday of like, oh, what is advertising doing to our children? Right. Uh, when we would watch ads, my parents would, we would play a game called Spot the Lie. When we would watch advertisements, my parents were like, where's the lie in this ad? And I'd be like, oh, um, if I had that beer, the pretty girl would talk to me. It's like, good, that's the lie, right? Um, but then you turn off the TV and you're not, and then you don't have ads around you anymore. That right. doesn't exist anymore. Um, anyway, it's just, um, there is a lot of parallels f- of the modern world and seeds planted now that have left untouched will grow into something um, that I think ultimately we, we don't want to be a part of. Um, anyway, that's so that's why we, that's that's Brave New World. Um, or at least that's the world. We didn't even mm-hmm. talk about the story. Um, but that's that's Aldous Huxley's book. I if you it is the summertime. If you are an, a listener it's of this podcast, yeah. it's a pretty quick read. Yeah, um, it's quick and it's easy. And fun fact is that Aldous Huxley in his later life almost subscribed to the society that he put in this deeply dystopian book. Yeah, he, he died. I think on drugs. Yes, I think that was all. Just that's what he. That's what he asked for. Is that he would. Um, he was would, it LSD that he would. Yeah, be given mm-hmm. that as he died, so he could die. high. Yeah. Yeah, uh, and so that's why I'm a little fuzzy on on his sort of. He doesn't repudiate the world. I mean, he's kind of is for it. He's sort know. of all over the place. Yeah. 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 Anyway, but that's Brave New World. Well, thanks for listening, everybody. This has been Classical Stuff You Should Know. You can catch us on the web at classicalstuff.net. You can tweet or is it com? It's not. It's net, right? Yes. Yeah, yeah, it's net. Mm-hmm. And then you can tweet at us at CLSSCAL stuff on the Twitters. And you can email us at classical stuff dot at veritasacademy.net. I, I tossed an extra dot in there. Let's try that one more time. Classical stuff at veritasacademy.net. And uh, we'll try to get back to your emails. It's summer, so we might be a little bit better with that in the upcoming months. And uh, we do we do read everything that's sent to us, even if we don't have a chance to reply to it all. So send us something. And this is The Boys signing off. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.